Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey friends, Elisa Childers here. We're going to talk about the New Testament today. Do we have an accurate copy of what they wrote in the first century? We've got an expert guest to share some really helpful information and also help us understand the best way to present this information to other people. Stay tuned. All right, I'm so honored to welcome my guest for today, Dr. Peter Gurry. Peter is Assistant Professor of New Testament at Phoenix Seminary, where he teaches Greek and lectures on the New Testament. He has a PhD from Cambridge and blogs frequently at evangelicaltextualcriticism.blogspot.com. He's written two books, A New Approach to Textual Criticism, An Introduction to the Coherence-Based Genealogical Method, and A Critical Examination of the Coherence-Based Genealogical Method in the New Testament Textual Criticism. That is a mouthful right there. It <laughs> so, is. Yes, it is. <laughs> welcome to the show, Peter. I'm so glad you could be here. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, uh, just kind of to start, um, that we're going to talk about something today that I I have a lot of interest in. I am, you know, not a scholar, but I do love reading about textual criticism. It was one of the big questions I had when my faith was first challenged uh, several years ago, and I first started getting into apologetics. Is I really wanted to know that the Bible I was reading that I had based my life on was actually what was originally written, that we even knew that we could have an accurate copy. So what, just let us know kind of the basic definition. What is textual criticism? Yeah, great question. So <clears throat> textual criticism is basically um, a field of study that tries to recover lost text or damaged texts. And so anytime a piece of literature has been written where the original has been lost, and the, the copies that we have of it disagree with each other, textual criticism is needed to try to resolve those differences and determine what the original of that work was. So that's the simple definition. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people don't realize that textual criticism is needed for all kinds of literature, and the Bible is just one part of that vast literature that textual criticism is needed for. So we have to do textual criticism on any any work that was written in antiquity, but all the way up on, into modern um, works of literature. Um, English scholars, for example, still practice textual criticism on Shakespeare. And then even further up into, say, the 19th and 20th century, there are still works of literature that scholars need to do textual criticism on. So the basic principle is anytime the copies that we have of a work differ from each other, textual criticism is how we try to resolve those differences and decide what the original or in some cases, the earliest uh, text is. So when a Christian hears a claim that, you know, hey, we don't have any of the original copies of the Bible, uh, what, what was your answer to that? Because that can sound kind of scary to someone who, who yeah. you know, doesn't really know how textual criticism works. 
It's true. We, we probably do not have any of the original uh, copies of any of the New Testament books. And that's true for almost all ancient literature. We don't have the original copies, that is the original manuscript itself, for almost any ancient literature. So in that sense, the Bible is in very good company. Um, my main response is to say to people when they ask that is to say, why do we need them? And the reason I ask that question is because that starts to get them thinking about the distinction between the original copy, that is the physical artifact, the parchment or papyrus, versus the original wording. And mm. as Christians, what we're really interested in most is the original wording of the New Testament, not necessarily the original parchment or papyrus that those words were written on in the first case. So the, the more important question is not do we have the original manuscripts, mm. but do we have the original wording of the New Testament? Does that make sense? It does. And it, 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 do you, just kind of as a side note, do you think it's possible to ever find an original? And if there was one, how would we even know? Oh, good, very good question. Would we ever find one? I will never say never. Okay. <laughs> it, I'll never say never because I don't want to look silly. Um, probably not, though, probably because they were all uh, used and worn out early on. Um, when it comes to early manuscripts, we have a lot that we can be thankful for. But we still have relatively few compared to how many there probably were at one time and certainly compared to how many we have from later ages. How would we know is a much harder question to answer. Some people have thought, well, we might know by seeing actual corrections on it. Mm -hmm. So there are some documents we have from antiquity where we know this is the author's copy. And one of the ways we know is from corrections. So if you, you, know, if you write a letter out longhand, chances are you're going to make some mistakes on it, and you're going to go back and correct those either in the process of writing it out, or you're going to go back later and, and correct those before you put it in the envelope and send it. So that might be one way. Another way, at least with Paul's letters, if we were to come across, say, papyrus of one of his letters, where we saw his name very big at the end, right? Where uh -huh. he says, I'm writing this in my own hand. <laughs> yeah. In at least one case, he says, I'm writing in big letters. Um, that would be an indication that, hey, this might be the actual autograph. Very cool. So just give us a quick flyover how textual criticism works. You know, you get these old manuscripts. Yeah. What do you do with them? So the first thing that has to be done is, is identifying that it is a New Testament manuscript, which in some cases is not as easy as it sounds, especially if it's a very small piece of, say, an early papyrus. Um, but once you've done that, once you've established that, yes, this is probably a New Testament manuscript, then the next thing to do is compare it to the other manuscripts that we have and that have been cataloged and, and studied and start to come up with a list of where that manuscript differs from the other ones that we know about. And from there, you start to get a list of what we call variants or differences between the manuscripts that we have. And the basic principle for determining uh, between those differences, determining which variant is original or not, is to say, which of the two, let's say we have two, which of the two readings in this case most likely explains the origin of the other one? And that's sort of the fundamental principle of all textual criticism. It obviously gets more, well, I could say either complicated or interesting, depending on your perspective, right? <laughs> I guess it depends on how much uh, someone loves this stuff. Right. right. I think it gets a lot more interesting after that. Um, but that's sort of the fundamental basic principle is we're trying to figure out when we have two competing readings, which one most likely explains how the other one came about. Um, and then yeah. there's various principles that sort of build off that basic And I, I imagine it would be helpful to have a lot of manuscripts for the same text to be able to do that. Is that true? It is true, yep, generally speaking. So sometimes in, in New Testament textual criticism, we, we talk about 
the blessing and the curse of having so so many manuscripts. Mm. Um, the blessing is that compared to some of our colleagues who work in, the, in classics, we have far more, and therefore we know a lot more about the history of the text and how it developed and changed and and all that. Um, and that can, yeah, that can give us a lot more confidence. It can also it also means a lot more work, mm. right? Because if you only have five manuscripts of a work that you've got to work through, hey, you can do that in a lifetime. Right. But if you've got 5,000, now we're talking about multiple lifetimes that are needed to, to do anything meaningfully with, with yeah. that many. So we need lots of people to go into the field of textual criticism to help with the we work. Do. Huh? <laughs> yes, we do. It is, it is a field ripe for the harvest. So if any yeah. listeners are interested, yes, come join us. Yeah. So when considering the New Testament, uh, how many manuscripts do we actually have? I know that I've heard lots of yeah. different numbers. And so, so at present, what, what would you say is the current count? That's a, a great question, and it's a question that apologists are often interested in, and, and they should be, and Christians should be interested as well. Um, oftentimes, the number is given around 5,500, sometimes 5,700, sometimes you'll see 6,000. Um, I have a colleague who's just written a chapter for a book I'm helping to edit who has gone through the, the careful work of, of studying the, the official catalog. We actually have an official catalog of New Testament manuscripts, and it might seem easy to just sort of count these up, right? You mm -hmm. count each manuscript once, and that's how many you have. And in an ideal world, that's all it would take. What makes it complicated is that these manuscripts, first of all, they've been cataloged for over 100 years. Mm -hmm. So in some cases, we've accidentally cataloged the same one twice. So that's a problem. Mm -hmm. um, in some cases, a manuscript has moved locations, so it maybe used to be in Athens, and now it's in Germany, or it used to be you know, in Germany, now it's in Ireland or, or wherever. And so keeping track of where, they, where these manuscripts travel can be a trick. Hmm. Some of them are lost because of fire or damage to a library or things like World War II um, or rodents. These can all be problems for manuscripts. Hmm. Um, so the official catalog is kept at an institute in Münster, Germany. And the institute is known as the Institute for New Testament Textual Research. And my friend who's gone through their catalog pretty carefully, he tells me he thinks there's probably about 5,300 total, that okay. that's a good rough estimate. Um, yeah. Nobody's really gone through and really carefully checked that to make sure we've removed all the duplicates or that say we've removed all the ones that used to exist, but we don't know where they are now, for example. So 5,300 is probably a good, good estimate to go with. And how does that compare with other, you mentioned that textual criticism is a science that works with all kinds of different works of classical literature. How does that count compared to other works of classical literature? Um, it all depends, of course, on, on the literature in question. If you take something like something very famous from the classical world like Homer, the Iliad and the Odyssey, we have thousands of manuscripts of, of those two epic poems. So in that case, that's probably the thing that gets closest to the New Testament in terms of the sheer number of manuscripts. Um, most ancient literature is is far fewer. So you're maybe, maybe lucky if you have a hundred, in some cases it may be 50. In a few cases, you're working with, you know, a half dozen or fewer manuscripts yeah. um, of that. So we so, sometimes say we're very blessed in New Testament. Yes. Uh, so what, what's the earliest manuscript that we have? And, and I'd, I'd love for you to talk for a, a minute about uh, you know, we, we want early manuscripts, but we also want the most reliable ones. So maybe talk yeah. about kind of how those different elements come into play. 
The traditionally the earliest New Testament manuscript is a is a small fragment of John's Gospel known as P fifty two, and the P stands for papyrus, and it's called papyrus fifty two because it's written on papyrus. Um, papyrus is an ancient writing source that um, much of it came from the Nile River, and it's a plant. You can actually still see it in ponds. My mom, for example, has papyrus plant growing in her pond in Ohio. Um, so it's still around, but it's very good for, for making uh, material out of that's that works roughly like paper. Um, so P52 is usually dated to the 2nd century, and then we have maybe another half dozen manuscripts or so from the 2nd century. And, and oftentimes they're dated 2nd, 3rd century so one thing we want to try to be very careful with is not just always preferring the earliest date mm-hmm. that suits our argument, if I can put it that way. Yeah. That's, that's a real temptation. As Christians, we sometimes want the, er, you know, the earliest thing we can get. And the way that scholars go about dating these manuscripts is it's an art and a science. And the art of it comes in the fact that we're comparing the way people wrote Greek letters and we're trying to use that to create a scale of time and then try to fit various manuscripts into that scale. And that's, that's just not an exact science. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so what other factors are involved when you look at a manuscript? I mean, are you looking at the, the, the skill of the scribe? And I mean, what, what plays into deciding what's the most yeah. reliable? In terms of what's the most reliable, um, that comes back ultimately to that fundamental principle of of which, when you have competing readings, which reading best explains the origin of the other readings. Mm-hmm. And so, in an ideal world, you, you want to go through your manuscripts and say, okay, overall, which manuscript seems to do that the most often in the places where we can make a confident decision, mm-hmm. right? Now, the other piece that comes into that, of course, is the date of the manuscript itself. So, typically, or let me say it this way, all things being equal, an earlier manuscript is probably better than a later manuscript. Mm-hmm. But all things are rarely equal in textual criticism. <laughs> so, so one of the things we, that is important to remind your listeners of is that earlier is not always better yeah. when it comes to manuscripts. So we have some early papyri that honestly, I would not want my Bible translated from them. <laughs> <laughs> right, they, right. They might be earlier than some later manuscript, but but... Uh, but a manuscript that's, say, copied in the ninth century, if it's copied from a reliable manuscript and that's copied from a reliable manuscript and so on, I'd much rather have a re- reliable ninth century manuscript than an unreliable or less reliable third century right. manuscript, right? Yes, I would imagine um, having the third century one would be valuable in the sense that knowing that it at least existed by the third century. Sure, um, yeah. But yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Yeah. So... Um, you mentioned that, you know, we have approximately maybe 5,300 manuscripts, and you mentioned that there are differences between these manuscripts, that, and you mentioned those are called variants. Now, this is where a lot of Christians can um, maybe not dig deep enough, and then they hear about this, and it kind of shakes their faith up a little bit because they're like, wait, there's mistakes in the manuscripts, or, uh, <laughs> you know, in their minds, they're seeing them as mistakes. So why don't you talk a little bit yep. about what a variant uh, actually is, and uh, just tell us a little bit about that. Right, good. So I think the first thing we can say is um, <clears throat> when textual critics talk about variance, or sometimes they'll use the term error or mistakes, uh, that we shouldn't necessarily interpret that to mean that it's, say, a theological mistake mm. or error, right? So as, as Christians, and particularly as evangelicals, we're concerned with the inspired text of Scripture. We want the text that God inspired, not the text, say, that some later scribe 
mistakenly copied. That's such right? a good point because that's, that's a really good point to just to really bring home because when I've talked about variants with Christians, it can be a little rattling, but I think mm-hmm. that's really the point is because as Christians, we're wanting what God inspired, not... Right what might have been added or changed. And if it's possible to figure that out, we want to figure it right. out. That's right. So I'm sorry, go, right. go ahead. I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but that was just such a good point. <laughs> yeah, no, that's exactly right. And I think, so, so, the, so sometimes people hear, well, there's, you know, hundreds of thousands of mistakes in the manuscripts and that's true, but you have to understand what these kind of mistakes are. If one manuscript says that uh, Jesus was baptized in the Jordan and another says that Jesus Christ was baptized in the Jordan, we still, as, as evangelical Christians, should want to know which one of those God inspired mm-hmm. and which one of those the inspired author wrote, because that's what we want to teach and preach and study and do theology from. But at the same time, it's not like one of those is telling us that Jesus wasn't baptized and one of us is telling him that he was, right? right? It's, not a, that, it's not that level of, of a difference. So by my calculations, and we have to, do, we have to estimate this because we, don't, we actually have not gone through all 5,000 plus manuscripts in detail. We just, there, it's just too much work. It's, mm-hmm. it's very, very labor intensive. And at a certain point, uh, it's not always worth the effort. But where we have done that with certain books or chapters of the New Testament, where we have gone through at least all the Greek manuscripts and collated them, compared them to each other and tabulated the variants, um, based on that data, I've estimated that we have about half a million non-spelling differences in our New Testament manuscripts. Mm-hmm. Now, I stress that that's an estimate because, again, we have not counted. We're just we're extrapolating from the data we do have. Right. Of those half a million, um, at least half of them, more than half of them actually, are either complete nonsense readings. That is, um, the scribe wrote something that makes literally no sense. We, we can't make sense of it because he just didn't write it correctly. Um, for example, I don't know if you do this, but in email, I always mess up the word the. I always end up with T-E-H or something like that, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know? Anybody reading my email will still know exactly what I mean, but T-E-H is not an English word. Right. Uh, so we're talking about those kind of mistakes, but in Greek, okay? So the mm-hmm. scribe meant to write the word the, the equivalent of the word the or something, and he wrote something that actually is not a Greek word. That, those are what we call nonsense readings. We, mm-hmm. we can't make sense of them. So at least half of those half a million variants are just of nonsense, okay? Mm-hmm. And in many cases, it's obvious what the scribe meant to write. Um, so they're easy to correct. And then another portion of those are what we call singular readings. They're readings that are found only in a single manuscript. And so they're pretty unlikely to be original. Mm-hmm. And then what we're left with is variants that are both meaningful or possibly original. Okay. Or meaningful. And then some of those may be original just to give you some idea though, uh, because even that large number can still seem like a lot of the total number of estimated variants. Again, where the data is available, I figured that about 0.3 to maybe 3% of those are of the kind that might affect the translation or the interpretation. Okay. And probably I should really say translation because sometimes something can affect the translation and it still doesn't really affect the interpretation that mm-hmm. much. So that's – if I were to give somebody a percentage, mm-hmm. I would say maybe 1% to 2% of the total number of variants – are of the kind that would even say make it into a footnote of your English Bible, mm-hmm. and okay. maybe even less. And and, uh, and that's probably the best metric I would give somebody. If, if somebody's listening to this and thinking, "Wow, that's a lot of variants," 
my advice would be to say, get your English Bible out and start paying attention to those footnotes that you normally ignore. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? Okay. And go through and just note the places and just go through one book, you know, sit down mm-hmm. for half an hour, go mm-hmm. through one book and just know every single place there's a, there's a footnote that says something like some manuscripts have. Okay. And the reason I say it is because what the translators have done is the translators have said, here are the variants that are the most difficult ones to resolve. We're, we're not sure what the original text is here, or it could mm-hmm. be this, or it could be that. And it affects the translation in some significant way. And, and that will give you a sense of just how many of these variants matter for, say, a, a, you know, an ordinary Christian reading their English Bible. Um, yeah. The translators have really done us a good, a good service in that in most cases. Yeah. And, and, you know, just to kind of bring this into a, the practical, before I started studying apologetics or even knew what textual criticism was, I, I remember reading the book of Mark and then mm-hmm. getting to the end and then the footnote kind of saying, hey, this part is not in some of the earliest and most reliable manuscripts. And I, in my uh, mind, because I didn't know anything about it, I was just kind of like, oh, whatever. I like what it says there, right. <laughs> you know, and I, <laughs> and right, I just yeah. completely yeah. <laughs> ignored the footnote because I was yeah. like, I like the, you know, jumping yeah. on snakes part and all that stuff. So <laughs> I don't want right. it. I don't care, you know. And so, right. but, you know, as I've kind of studied a little more, I've had to sort of go, okay, well, we actually have to, we have to do, we have to look at those things and realize that there's a reason that that's disputed. There's a reason that that wasn't in the earliest and most reliable manuscripts and sort of, you know, submit myself to the truth on that rather than just kind of liking what that says there. Yeah, that's right. um, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a, especially for a a Christian who doesn't know Greek and, and isn't a scholar, it's, it's a balance, isn't it? Of on the one hand, wanting to trust the expertise of those behind your English translations, and at the same time, not simply blindly following them or assuming that because they've they've already produced the translation, everything's done. You don't need to think about it anymore because we we don't want to do that as Christians. We don't want to just assume that somebody else should do all of our thinking for us, right? And so that's that's really important. We're going to come right back to this discussion in just a moment. But I wanted to take a minute and tell you about a ministry I really believe in called Impact 360. Impact 360 facilitates summer experiences for high schoolers that are amazing. I got to speak at the Propel Experience last summer, which is a week-long camp-like experience where they have a lot of fun, but they also talk about really important things like what we're talking about on this podcast today. There's apologetics, there's uh, biblical points on cultural issues. They focus on the whole person, how to live in Christian community with others. It's such a great foundational experience for young people to have. If you want to register your high schooler for Propel for next year, you go to impact360.org slash Propel. Right now, it's the early bird pricing, so you're going to get $100 off your tuition. But if you use my name as a promo code, that's ALISA, all caps, A-L-I-S-A, you'll get an additional $50 off for a total of $150 off. This is good through the end of December. So take advantage of this, and I really, really hope I'll get to meet your teenager at Propel next summer. Well, let's jump right back into our discussion with Dr. Peter Gurry. So you're estimating the meaningful variance at 2 to 3%, is that correct? Yeah. The, the main thing to get across to somebody is to say, of the total number of variants, most of them are the kind that only 
yeah. really experienced text critics uh, think about and work with. Yeah. And it kind of goes down from there. So let me, if I can give one sure. concrete example, if I have it. Um, for John 18, we have a very exhaustive comparison of all the Greek manuscripts for John chapter 18. Mm-hmm. And we have about 1,600 of those, okay, wow. a little over. And from those, we have just over 3,000 variants, at least by my count, okay? Now, there's eight, about 800 words in John 18 in, in most Greek texts, okay? So you're talking about 3,000 variants for 800 words in 1,600 manuscripts. Well, if you do the math on that and you think, okay, every time a scribe copied all of John 18, he copied 800 words of Greek text. So if you multiply that by 1,600 manuscripts, you get about 1.3 million words mm. that scribes copied, right? Yeah. And if you do the math further, what that comes out to is about one new variant that was created for every 400 words that scribes copied. Mm-hmm. Now, again, when you count just when you just look at the total number of variants, it still comes out to a lot. 3,000 variants is a lot. Okay, mm-hmm. you know how many of those end up in a footnote in, say, the ESV translation? The answer is zero. Mm. Zero. If you look at a commentary. Um, if you look, I've got at least two commentaries on my shelf that I looked at, one by D.A. Carson and one by C.K. Barrett. And between the two of them, they discuss maybe a dozen mm. of those. Okay, So that gives you some sense that a, a scholar writing a commentary feels like he needs to interact with about 12 variants in that chapter. Mm-hmm. And English translation translators come along and say, you know what, actually none of these really rise to the level of the point that we need to alert the English Bible reader about them. Okay, yeah. So... That just kind of helps give some perspective. I don't want to give the sense that there are no difficult variants in the New Testament. There absolutely are, and there are some that affect our interpretation, okay? Uh But relatively speaking, and that's the key, relatively speaking, their number is small. Yeah. Okay. So can you you give us some specific examples of meaningful variants? And actually, I'd love for you to comment on this one, because the, the reason that uh, earlier when I, I mentioned that it's, you know, from what I've learned, at least, it's not just the earliest manuscript, but the most reliable, because um, I was listening to a, a podcast from Dan Wallace, your friend, and he was mm-hmm. talking about how, you know, that we know the number of the beast as 666. And, yes, but there's right. an early manuscript that actually has it as a different number, are you, you know? And so, um, but, but he was saying basically in this case, the earliest manuscript is not the most reliable because, you know, they look through and there were things that they can, and even I think Eusebius, the early uh, church historian had commented that he had seen those manuscripts and commented that that early one was not very reliable. And so um, there's just so many different factors that go into doing good textual criticism. But if you, Mm -hmm. and you know, if you want to comment on that or give us some, uh, just some specific examples when people open their Bibles and they can go look and find one right, even right now and see uh, the the difference between the different uh, translations and why they chose the wording they did. Yep, great question. So just just so your listeners know that six 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 variant is in Revelation thirteen eighteen, and of course that's the the infamous mark of the beast, mm-hmm. um, which is six six six. And yes, some manuscripts have. 616 rather than 666. And mm-hmm. I'm looking at my ESV right now. I've got it open. And sure enough, you have a footnote letting you know that. Um, and, and Irenaeus is a great case. There's a case where Irenaeus knows about this early on. So even if we had no manuscripts that had 616, we would still know that at least Irenaeus uh-huh. had some manuscripts that had that early on. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a good example of a variant that is, I think most scholars would probably feel that 666 still has the better case for it to be original, but, um, 
But yeah, there's one that certainly would affect a lot of popular <laughs> yes. identifications of the beats, right? If it it's sure six would. Months, like there are a whole book series that would be that, uh, <laughs> really that's put correct. in question. Would be nullified. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, so let me give you just a couple other variants that I think are both important. That is, they affect more than just say the translation and are also difficult to resolve. The first one that that's, I think is a very good example is Mark one one. So Mark, probably the earliest gospel written, and right there in the first, what we now call the first verse, we have an important textual variant. Mark starts the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then in many manuscripts, most manuscripts, he goes on to say the Son of God, okay? Mm -hmm. Which in Mark's gospel is going to be a very important theme. That theme is going to climax at the crucifixion when the centurion says, surely this man was the Son of God, seeing how Jesus dies on the cross, okay? Um, and so, but some manuscripts do not have that extra title for Jesus there, the Son of God. And so the question that text critics and, and interpreters and even a preacher would need to wrestle with is, do I think that is the original reading or not? Or, or which one of those is the original reading? That particular variant is easily explained in Greek, but it's easily explained either direction. So the addition of the phrase Son of God could be explained by the fact that scribes sometimes— um, gave Jesus longer titles when they were copying, out of reverence for him. Mm. So, for example, if a scribe came across the name Jesus, he might add Jesus Christ. Um, or he might call him Jesus our Lord, because that's how we as Christians all know him. And so a scribe might inadvertently just expand a title for Jesus, knowing that he is Jesus Christ or Jesus the Lord, and so out of reverence for him, add add that. That's one possible explanation for the longer reading here for the title Son of God being added. Um, Hmm. The other explanation, though, for it being accidentally removed is that in Greek, the last letters of the words right before this phrase and the last letters of this phrase are exactly the same. Mm -hmm. And so it's very easy to be copying those out by hand and for your eye to jump from one set of letters to the exact same set of letters later on and leave out what comes in between. Mm -hmm. So... But this is a good case of where this is a difficult variant, and um, in some ways it's a, it's a good test case because it shows on the one hand how variants can affect interpretation, and at the same time, there really aren't any variants in the New Testament that change the Christian faith, Yeah. if I could put it that way. Okay. Yeah. So, for example, in this case, does it matter if Mark calls him the Son of God in the first verse? Well, I think it does because— it tells us something about the way he wants us to read the whole story, right? Right. If he tells us right up front, then he wants us to know that up front and then read everything else that happens in light of that, okay? Now, if he doesn't tell us that right up front, does that mean that Mark doesn't think Jesus is the Son of God? Of course not. Right. Because, in fact, you don't have to get to the end of the first chapter before Jesus is being baptized and the voice says, this is my beloved, what? Son. Son, yeah. So we know even by the end of the first chapter that that's who Jesus is. And then, of course, that theme gets developed as as the gospel goes on. So either way, Mark's gospel gives us a Jesus who is the Son of God. That's not really in question. The, the real question is, how does Mark want us to read it from the very first verse? Does he want us to read it with that in mind? Or does he want us to figure it out more as we go? Yeah. Okay. Um, let me give you one uh, one more variant that I think okay. is is a little bit more difficult. In, in that case, I'll just tip my hat to your readers. I happen to think the, the reading with the Son of God is more likely to be uh, original there. Okay. 
Um, the more difficult one, though, at least for me personally, that I haven't quite resolved, is in Luke's gospel, uh, in the crucifixion, this is very famous, when Jesus crucified, Jesus says in chapter 23, verse 34, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then they cast lots to divide his garments. And that's probably one of the most famous uh, sayings of Jesus in the Gospels, that he's on the cross. It's this remarkable act of offering forgiveness yeah. to the very people who are crucifying, right? And of course, the the sort of irony of it is even heightened by the fact that that he's actually dying so that their sins can be forgiven, right? It's not right. just that he's offering them forgiveness. It's that he's in the very act of doing the thing that will be the ground for their forgiveness. Yeah. And... And that variant, there's a variant there, and some early manuscripts do not have that reading at all, that prayer. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's a really difficult variant to resolve. And the question is, if Luke originally wrote that prayer, why in the world would somebody want to cut it out? Yeah. And on the other hand, if Luke didn't write that prayer, where in the world did it come from? And yeah. how did it get there? So those are the two questions that you have to try to wrestle with with that particular variant. And again, it all goes back to this basic question, right? Yeah. Which of the two readings is most likely to explain how the other one came about? Yeah. And if you can answer that question, then you're on pretty good grounds to say which one you think is original. Now, again, I want to stress, if let's say Jesus didn't actually pray that prayer, okay? Let's say that Mark didn't write that, and mm-hmm. therefore Jesus didn't say it, okay? Or we don't know if he said it. Does that change the fact that Jesus told us or taught us to forgive our enemies? Exactly. No, it doesn't. Okay. So again, I think this is a good example of a verse. I don't think any Christian would say it doesn't matter whether or not this verse is original to Luke's gospel. I think we would all say it matters and we want to know. Yes, (laughs) right. (laughs) And we ought to want to know if we can. Yeah. At the same time, I think we would all admit that if it's not original, we lose a, a really fantastic example of what Jesus taught us to do, but we don't actually, it doesn't actually change what he taught us to do. Does that make sense? That is such a good point because I think, you know, as I first started looking into some of this stuff, it, like I said, it can be a little rattling for an yep. average Christian like me. And, yep. but then when you do begin to realize that, you know, like you said, there's, there's not, you're not going to find a variant that completely topples Christianity. Like there's one yeah. variant, you know, there, the, Jesus was resurrected and then we can't, and that's a variant, but we can't find it anywhere else in the Bible. I mean, there are plenty that's of right. passages that right. will testify to that. And that's so interesting about that variant you just mentioned. I was not aware of that one, but I just yeah. interviewed Paul Copan on his criticism yeah. of Greg Boyd's uh, cruciform hermeneutic that's in his book, mm-hmm. uh, The Warrior God. And mm-hmm. his whole hermeneutic is based on that verse where he's saying that's we should interpret, you know, all, the whole Bible through that prayer that's, Jesus mm-hmm. prayed. And that's yeah. just re- really interesting that that's, yeah. that that's yeah. actually a variant. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah. You should always, I mean, just in terms of method, you should always be careful building too much around a single verse. Yes. And you certainly want to be careful about building around a single verse that's textually difficult in this case. Yeah. Um, and again, that's that's part of the matter. If, if all you have is your English Bible, it's just a matter of starting to teach yourself to pay attention to those footnotes, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're a pastor, it means probably getting the training you need so you can start to, to dig a little bit deeper um, right. and be able to help your people once these issues come up. There's plenty of verses that don't. Like John 3.16 has no significant variance in it at all, right? That's good to <laughs> <Okay>. know. <laughs> so everyone who's writing 
everyone who's writing, you know, John three sixteen in football games, you're fine. That 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 verse is not in question. Okay, <laughs> right, right. But but there are some really significant verses like this one in Luke twenty three that that are that we've got to deal with. And and I've thought too. I don't know if this this is just my thinking, but you know, again, when I was trying to make sense of knowing that there are these these variants, um, it, it sort of keeps us from getting on a hobby horse with one verse. Like whenever I'm reading mm-hmm. the Bible now, I'll look and see, well, is there a variant in here? Because, you know, <laughs> yeah. you don't want to do your theology based yeah. on a variant. And, and yeah, we shouldn't be doing our theology based on one verse anyway, you know? Yeah, and so sure. um, it, it, it's sort of a good way way for us to just change our thinking to where we, we, we aren't just looking for that one verse to prove what we're saying, but really look at what the whole Bible says and be aware of, you know, if there's a variant in here or how many other verses affirm what that one is saying. And um, so, yeah, that's, that's good stuff for yep. us to be aware of. So I, I would imagine that the field of textual criticism was affected by the invention of computers because you've got all these different manuscripts. Yep. And um, so how would you say that that has affected uh, that field? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so the the invention of the computer has obviously revolutionized a lot of industries, and it's and it's really revolutionizing textual criticism as well. And I would say, uh, let me give you maybe three quick ways it's it's done that. The first is uh, the the arrival of the internet and the digitizing of manuscripts has made New Testament manuscripts more accessible than they've ever been in history. Um, I could send you two websites where you could look at thousands of images of thousands of New Testament manuscripts, and you, if you could read Greek, you could look at them and study them for yourself. And in some cases, you could even correct the, you know, the books that I used to do textual criticism where they make mistakes because that that does happen. Wow. And so it used to be in the old days that you had to travel to Europe to some of the great libraries uh, on the continent or or in the UK. In Ireland to uh, to see these manuscripts in person to be able to study them or uh, be able to afford sometimes very expensive facsimiles of them and those days are are if not largely gone they are quickly passing away because yeah. libraries are digitizing manuscripts um, institutes like the one that Dan Wallace started the Center for the Study of New Testament manuscripts mm-hmm. they uh, volunteer to go to libraries and digitize their manuscripts and then host the images on their website so that we can all look at them and use them. So that's probably the first way is the accessibility of manuscripts um, is, is, is revolutionizing things where we can, we can look at manuscripts far yeah. easier and we can look far more than, than we've ever been able to practically yeah. before. Um, the second one is that um, the invention of computers is allowing us to work with a lot more data than we've been able to before. Uh, before it would have been extremely cumbersome to try to sort through the data from thousands of manuscripts. And nowadays, if we can get the data in the computer, and I want to stress that getting the data into the computer is still very labor intensive, mm-hmm. okay? But once we get the data into the computer, we can do all kinds of things with it much faster than we'd ever been able to before. So the, the thing that I worked on in my dissertation that you very uh, very admirably pronounced correctly in your introduction, the uh, coherence-based genealogical method. Well done. It was difficult. I <laughs> well practiced. Uh, yeah, that's good. Very good. I mean, I had to say that word to people for three years over and over again, so I got pretty good at it. But um, <laughs> I didn't I didn't pick the title. I like to say that I did not pick the title. Um, but the coherence method is using computers, is leveraging them in a way we've never been able to before. And it's it's really, in my opinion, uh, some people disagree with me, but I think it's leading to some significant advances in the discipline 
and is going to be for the better yeah. um, for us in the long run. So that's great. So what is it basically? Uh, what is the coherence-based genealogical method? Uh, there's no way I can answer that question. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just kidding. Uh, it is really complicated, and I've written two books okay. on it. Okay. So I will give you the very simple version, and if you want to ask me more, you can, but I don't want you to feel obligated. Okay, to. okay. Um, so basically what the computer does is you input the text of, say, 100-plus manuscripts, and the computer will, will help you do the difficult work of comparing them at each place, okay? Yeah. And once you've done that, the computer will start to ask you at each place where there's disagreement among the manuscripts, the computer will ask you, okay, well, which one do you, as the editor, as the user of the software, which one do you think is the original reading here? Okay. Mm-hmm. And it'll do that at thousands of places. So in the Catholic letters that I worked on in my dissertation, there are 3,000, just over 3,000 places of variation in those letters. Um, so at each place, the editor tries to make the decision as best they can by relating the, the variants to each other, saying, you know, variant A was the origin for variant B, and variant B was the origin for variant C. And you go through and do that, and then what the computer can do, much faster than we could do on our own, is it sort of aggregates all those together. It combines all those together and says, okay, based on your own decisions, you think that manuscript A most often has the original reading or the earliest reading in comparison to manuscript B. Mm-hmm. Okay. So in other words, it uses the relationship between individual variants to help us relate manuscripts to each other. And then in a sort of circular motion, it allows us to turn that back in on itself and say, okay, well, based on these manuscript relations that are developing from my own decisions, how can I be more consistent in, say, the decisions that I thought were really difficult on the first go around? Mm, okay. Mm-hmm. So in a lot of ways, the coherence method is intended to make us more consistent in our decisions because the reality is, look, a human mind, after you make – after you're at, say, decision 40 you know, out of 3,000, mm-hmm. you don't remember what you did the first 20 times probably. Right, okay. right. And certainly by decision 1,000, <laughs> yeah. you don't remember everything you did in the last 1,000 decisions. So in a way, it's the computer is able to keep track of the decisions that we can't with our own mind right? and then feed those decisions back to us and say, hey, here are some of the implications of the things that you've, you've done and that you've said. Wow. Uh, so in a way, it's the computer is kind of helping us stay more consistent. That's Very a big cool. part of it. Very cool. Well, we've just got a few minutes left here, but I want to ask you about something you've re- recently written about. And, you know, I admit that, you know, I could get uh, I'm putting myself out here now, <laughs> but about you've written about <laughs> yeah. the mistakes that apologists can tend to make regarding textual criticism. And so, yeah. um, you know, and as an apologist myself, I want to, I want to get it right. You know, I want to say what's the truth and not necessarily what's just going to make everybody feel better. Um, yeah. so I'm just going to ask you, talk a little bit about some of the common mistakes you see apologic, uh, see in the apologetics world and how can we as apologetics get better at how we present this information to churches yeah. and, and people? Yeah, that's a great question. So two, two part answer. First part is to say you've already done the, the most important thing, which is to care most about getting it right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's always where we have to start. We have to be honest with ourselves and where the evidence doesn't support the view we would like it to support. We need to be honest about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we keep studying, keep hoping that maybe more evidence comes up or that better interpretations of the evidence arise that will uh, support the, the faith that we believe is true. Um, so I, I just commend you, first of all, for that, that, that if you're an apologist out there listening to this and that's what you want to do, all I can do is commend you and say, keep up the good work. That's the most important thing you can do is have a desire to be honest with the data. 
Um, and the second thing is to say I'm working on a book with a friend, and it, it will be each chapter will be designed to help apologists make better use of the data of textual criticism. Oh, great. So each one is kind of designed to help correct some misinformation that's out there about textual criticism. And then not just criticize it, but also then give sort of a better way forward and say, okay, instead of saying this, we can say this instead. Or here's how this evidence still does support the reliability of the New Testament text, but maybe not in the way we thought it did before. Mm, um, let me think about give an example of that. Well, let me, let me give an example that you already asked about. And that is a, a common, common apologetic is to say, we have 5,000 plus manuscripts of the New Testament, and we, when we compare that to other ancient literature, the other ancient literature is dwarfed by comparison. Yes, okay? I've, I've said something along those lines, I yeah, admit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, there's, there's two things to say about that. The first is, generally speaking, that's true. Generally speaking, we do have far more manuscripts. But as they say, the devil is in the details. Mm. And in this case, we need to be careful first that we're we're taking account of what kinds of manuscripts we have for the New Testament. So, for example, most of our manuscripts really do come from later, say from the 9th century and later, which is not necessarily a bad thing. I want to stress it's not necessarily a bad thing, um, but we need to be honest about that so that people aren't getting the impression that we have, say, 5,000 early, you right, know, first right. century copies or something absurd like that. That would be crazy. And then the other thing to say is apologists have a tendency to try to be very exacting when it comes to the number of New Testament manuscripts and then to be far less exacting when it comes to the number of classical manuscripts. Oh. <laughs> so I've read many, many an apologist who will say, try to get the very latest count on the number of New Testament manuscripts from, say, Dan Wallace, which is a good thing to do. Um, uh -huh. But then they will go back to F.F. F. Bruce's book, his classic book from the 40s, and cite his oh. numbers for, say, Herodotus, which are now wildly out of date. Right. You know? Oh, that's good. So, that's good because I've actually tried, um, you know, before I'll give this the New Testament reliability talk or whatever to youth groups or whoever, I'll look and it's very difficult to find a consistent consensus on those ancient, you know, those <laughs> yeah, other ones. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And then, and so there's a couple things. There's a, there's a lot you can do with that argument, I think, to improve it. One thing you can do is to say, um, this, first of all, the sheer number doesn't actually make any difference. If you have 5,000 bad manuscripts, that's not actually a great thing. Right, right. right. Okay? So the argument needs to be not just the number that we have, but the quality, the overall quality that we have. That's actually the more important piece. So I sometimes like to say to people, how many good manuscripts in the New Testament do I need before I can trust it? Mm, that's a good question. Yeah, and the answer, good. at least theoretically, is I only need one. Mm. And so I like to tell people, if you let me pick the one manuscript from our 5,000 plus, I will be totally happy. Mm, <laughs> you know, that's, yeah, as long as I can yeah. pick. There's, there's a few I wouldn't want to pick, okay? There's a few I wouldn't want to base my faith on necessarily if I had the choice, okay? Yeah. But there's loads of New Testament manuscripts I'd be more than happy to base my Christian faith off because they're, they're plenty reliable for what I, what I need. Yeah. And so in some, some ways, I just kind of reframe the arguments and, and get people to think that way because the danger that can happen in particular with that argument is people think, well, if I just had one more manuscript, yeah. then I would have that much more confidence in Jesus Christ. Right. And I want to say, most people in history have only had one Bible. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it was plenty for them. Yeah. And so that's another tip I might give to an apologist to say, be careful that your argument for the reliability of the text doesn't inadvertently pull the rug out from our ancestors, mm. from, the, from our forebears in the faith. Remember that most people in Christian history have not owned a personal Bible, and in many cases, they all they had was a manuscript. And guess what? It had 
textual mistakes in it. Yeah. It had scribal errors in it. And you know what? They were still Christians, and they still believed the right things about Jesus Christ and about the Christian faith. So don't make everything hang on, you know, for example, finding a first century copy of Mark, which is something that's been, you know, in the news for the last yeah. five or six yes, years. Yes, it has. Um, you know, as exciting as that might be, my faith does not in any way depend on us finding a first century manuscript of any part of the New Testament. Yeah. Um, I've got ninth century manuscripts I'd be happy to base my faith on, right? Yeah, that's, that's great. <laughs> um, and, so that, that's one example. Yeah. yeah. And then we'll have plenty more in the book, of course. Well, I'm looking forward to that book. I, I will uh, definitely be looking for that. And I'd love to have you back on when that comes right. out and uh, just help you promote that, that book in the apologetics community because yeah. we need it. We yeah. need it. That's, that's yeah. great. So, And I want to stress, if I can stress, Elisa, just on that real quick, I want to stress that, that the book is really intended to help people. Um, yeah, yeah. The editor and I, and I know the contributors feel the same way, like the, the work that apologists do is really important. Mm. Um, it's not necessarily the work that I do day to day, but that's not what I've been called to do. And, and in some ways, you know, we have to think in terms of the body of Christ. Yeah. And so if this book can help apologists do their job better, that's great. And I'm not trying to necessarily tell them how to do their job, but really, if this could be a tool for them to use, we'd be really happy. I wish that that scholars in all disciplines would write a book like that. That would be fantastic, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Peter, this has been so interesting and fun for me. Thanks so much for being here today. Right. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can sign up to receive my posts by email by going to alisachilders.com and clicking the subscribe button or simply subscribe to the Elisa Childers podcast on iTunes. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.